disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. What I've always said was, my art isn't complete until it's shared. So I want to share it, and I definitely wanted to share it and wanted people to see images that I was taking all over the world. I didn't want just Americans to see it. I wanted the world to see America in a more vulnerable, in my opinion, more of a realistic way. I think people from other countries were seeing America, you know, with the beautiful city skyscapes of New York City and Seattle. But they were seeing my images and thought that it was the third world country. They didn't think it was America. And then Americans started looking at my images and thought the same thing. So to me, to share it was, to me, was vital. I wasn't just taking these images for myself. No, I was taking these images to share with as many people as I possibly could. That is noted urban explorer Seth Lawless, a photojournalist, doc maker, and author who documents public decay in abandoned spaces. Malls, factories, hotels, motels, even marauding alligators in old water parks. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence. Recognized by Barron's, as a Hall of Fame advisor. Learn more at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to others. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. Joining me from somewhere between an abandoned, what, Tom McCann and Orange Julius, somewhere near the food court and merry-go-round is Seth Lawless, photojournalist, documentarian, published author. His latest book is Abandoned Malls of America, Crumbling Commerce Left Behind. Seth is synonymous with these viral photos of, of snowed over malls, glass everywhere, dilapidated escalators. You've been on Vice, on CNN, uh, BBC's picked up your stuff. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. We're actually joining us from Cleveland, but I'm not trying to say that's synonymous with an abandoned <laughs> Orange Julius, but surely Cleveland has got, you know, it's it's knocks and everything. I actually want to ask you about this stuff uh, growing up because it was, you know, your father worked in, a, was it a Ford factory in Ohio? He did. Yeah. Um, my grandfather as well, um, Mexican immigrant. He came here during the uh, revolution um, and got uh, a job at the Ford factory plant up in Detroit. Um, my dad was raised there eventually relocated to Cleveland, Ohio, where I was raised. So Cleveland certainly got its knocks in the 70s and 80s. I think Mel Brooks always uh, made fun of it, whereas the famous, you know, the, the, the fire in the Cuyahoga River. Uh, yeah, that's so true. Am I kind of baiting you to talk about Cleveland? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's changed a lot. Um, uh, you know, growing up um, since World War II, we, we lost a, a, a lot of, of factories, uh, American manufacturing jobs that were shipped overseas, uh, globalization. And it, it shifted a lot because um, that resulted in population loss. So, you know, you have abandoned schools, abandoned malls, abandoned amusement parks, abandoned factories that line the sky around me as a kid playing, you know, 
almost, I remember as a kid, I, I, I could turn in almost any direction playing outside. And where I was, you could see abandoned factories just crumbling like this apocalyptic landscape around me. So I had a, a fascination from a, from a young age, especially taking little road trips and, and family vacations through other Rust Belt cities, you know, um, that were hit just kind of the same way. May I ask you, how old are you? Um, 42. So like me, malls were a part of your 1980s childhood. I mean, that was the center of social life. I mean, since the sixth grade. I mean, I try to explain it to my kids. They're like, really? You actually went there? What did you do? Uh, you just walked in and out of stores. There were candy stores. There were music stores, record stores. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you grew up in that crucible? Oh, I did. Yeah, big time. And uh, a lot of the malls that I shot, especially here in Ohio, some of my most viral and famous abandoned mall images were malls that I attended to regularly as a kid. So it was surreal, profound, very moving, very emotional for me to be in some of these malls um, over the years. But yeah, they played an intricate part of my life. As you know, I mean, these were these malls at the time were probably one of the largest communal spaces in America at that time. And people went there. They were gigantic chat rooms before the internet ever existed. You know, you'd meet people, you talk to people, you window shopped. I, I, I spent so much time at the mall and I, I can't remember, I spent more time just hanging out there than buying stuff. And I think most people yeah. could relate to that, you know? I see your interview, the Q&A in cleveland.com. They ask you, I think people respond to your photos because they have memories of these places and seem, and to see them now, I mean, and you responded, I'm old enough. I remember Gyalgal Lake. I remember Six Flags. I remember going to the mall. I hung out there. These big grand places that served as pinnacles of the community were not only institutions or places of commerce, there were communal spaces where a lot of people went and shared good memories. These are very nostalgic places. Do you recall, and I've often asked retail analysts and uh, uh, you know economists and others, what was the tipping point? I mean, certainly pre-internet, every town seemed to have the good mall and the dying mall, right? There was a, there was a more expensive place that, that JCPenney moved to and uh, that wasn't as blue collar and maybe had parking that you had to pay for. That certainly sounded the death knell for a lot of these older properties that kind of came of age in the 70s. No, it's very true. And the death of each mall is is different. But uh, for the most part, and what I've seen in documenting when my latest book, Abandoned Malls of America, covers 26 uh, deserted malls across the country from north to south to California to New York and everywhere in between. But for, for the most part, um, I noticed a lot of them closed in 2007, 2008, 2009. Well, the housing crisis, right? So that played a role. The economy was hit. The economy was uh, taking a hit. A lot of them were probably already suffering in, in ways. A lot of them were in economically depressed areas already, meaning in some instances, which was kind of bizarre for me to, to understand, was the entire community was in shatters in, in some of these instances where neighborhoods are virtually abandoned, the schools, everything else, and you still see a mall thriving, the, no anchor store, or the, a Target might have moved in for like a year, and then that couldn't sustain the mall as an anchor. So, um, and then, you know, all it takes is something like an economy shift or, um, you know, what we had in 2008 to really kind of put a nail in the coffin. And that's kind of the trend that I've seen. Seth, when did you first pick up a camera? Um, I started in around 2001, late 2001, going into 2002, where I actually started photographing for a hobby and a passion of mine. And uh, at, at what point, I guess, did, did the virality of the internet kind of lend itself to this? This is pre 
This is pre-Twitter, pre-Instagram. News outlets were calling you. We started seeing really truly Amazon as a as a phenomenon in the early aughts with Amazon Prime and a lot of the stuff going online. And certainly, as you said, the Great Recession and the real estate meltdown in 07 and 08 certainly sounded the death knell for a lot of these properties. It really did. And, and there's three in Ohio that are now Amazon fulfillment centers. And a lot of people have been writing me since my book has been released saying that, oh, the, you know, that mall has been raised or now that's an Amazon fulfillment center and it's shipping out that book. So, you know, the irony of that is just uh, so far reaching, I, I think. But I, I don't think it's necessarily just Amazon. A lot of people just right go to online. I believe me, I think that took a big a big cut, but I think consumer habits change. And I think, you know, after 2001, we had 9-11. I don't know if you, if you remember this. I, I I definitely remember this, that malls were a soft target for Al-Qaeda. So people were afraid to go to malls, especially after that time. So they started designing, deconstructing the mall, if you will. They had open malls with open courtyards and people didn't want to shop under energy wasting fluorescent lighting. They wanted natural lighting. So the consumer sure. shifted. And so I think, you know, we catered, uh, the malls kind of changed into that. So there, it's kind of a twofold system, I think, why while malls pretty much have failed and probably will in a foreseeable future. Talk to me, Seth, if you will, about trespassing. I guess yours is trespassing in, in, in service of kind of uh, public knowledge and education. You're not there to claim, you know, old copper pipes and graffiti the place and, and, and salvage other things. When did you first develop, you know, where, when did you first become bold enough to kind of go into these things? Oftentimes at your own peril. I see your boots in the glass all over these escalators that could collapse and cave in at any time. Yeah. You know, I got to say, I think now looking back at some of that over the years, I, I, I've taken extraordinary risks that I don't know if I would take today. So the whole trespassing thing uh, for me, it, it's always there, obviously, and there's that line, and I see it in my head, that uh, metaphorically speaking, and I have no problem crossing that line um, because I know what I'm doing is I, what I think of is I'm trying to capture reality of something that's really unseen to the general public, and usually I'm shooting a place that really is telling a story, kind of untold chapters of American history, if you will. So I do justify that in my head to a degree, and over the years, my work has been a little bit more legitimized. So I'll get offers, you know, so a lot of the stuff I've shot recently is hundred percent legal. So I don't have to do that as much as I have in the past, but the risks are, are still there. Um, and I, I take a lot less risk than I used to do. Let, let's just say that. Uh, Seth, uh, tell me, you know, I want to steer this conversation into, uh, one of, uh, abandonment and waste. I think what was shocking to me is when I went to college up north and I take the Jersey Transit up and down or go from New Jersey to Philly or, or, or Manhattan and Baltimore, not exactly the Rust Belt, but there's plenty of abandonment along those tracks. And I thought to myself, how are people just allowed to put up factories or foundries or smokestacks 100 years ago with no contingency plan for what happens when and if these companies go under? Uh, th there's such a lack of recyclability of these places. They're brownfields. A lot of times they turn into super fun sites. I look at your work and I look at abandonment across the country, whether it's you know about abandoned apartment complexes, abandoned malls. Uh, and, and I think about all the raw materials and energy consumption and man hours of labor that went into putting that up. And it's just sitting there and, and occupying land right now. And nobody ever thought about uh, waste or how it returns back to nature. 
No, that's a big a, a big part of my work in terms of what a lot of people uh, take away from seeing the images. There's a lot of waste and a lot of anger and a lot of discussion about it. Some projects more than others, but some just harmful to the environment because of what some of these billion-dollar companies have done. It just kind of up and left or, or what have you. And most of the abandoned structures you see that might be eyesores on the way to work in the morning for many Americans, they're not completely abandoned. They're owned by somebody. Somebody owns that. And so um, there's neglectful owners as well, you know, where it's just literally in such a state where, for instance, there was this abandoned mansion I was shooting. Where was it? It was in rural PA, Pennsylvania. And uh, I was in it and it, I, it almost felt like it was going to cave in. Well, the next, literally the next day, I drove back to Cleveland. I read in the local newspaper there that part of it fell into the sidewalk and it par- partially caved. And the city stepped in and immediately tore it down. But where was the inspections there? Why, why didn't they tear it down before someone could have really got hurt? I mean, it literally fell down on a, si- a public sidewalk. So those are the kind of things you see in, in my line of work that it's kind of discouraging. It's a lot of waste. And honestly, touring the world, doing stuff like this and traveling the world, America does it far none, way more than any other country I've ever stepped foot in, especially throughout in Europe. It's almost non-existent in Europe. Uh, Seth, tell me about the Rust Belt. Uh, you, you, you did get some press in 2016 for predicting that, uh, listen, the economic disparity situation, the sense of abandonment kind of metaphorically in places like Ohio, in Wisconsin and others was so pungent, the inequality was so high and people were so left behind that you thought something like a President Trump, a populist movement, could well happen. Yeah, I did. And I remember uh, my first book, Autopsy of America, The Death of a Nation, which came out in 2017. I was working on that, obviously, during that year when he was elected. And Michael Goldfarb actually wrote uh, the intro to my book. And he, he was here from BBC News, following me around the Rust Belt region. And we were he was doing like a story about maybe what independence voters were going to vote for. So he was following around. So me and him actually aligned up at some point. We went up to Michigan. So we were seeing kind of this populist movement grow in these sections. We were just seeing it. Like we were seeing him speak. We're seeing the looks on their faces as we panned the room. And we just saw this energy. And I remember we were actually sitting in this abandoned factory overlooking downtown Cleveland when we came back to Cleveland. And I looked at him. I said, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I think Trump is going to win. And uh, he said the same thing. He thought so, too. But it wasn't really a popular thing unless you were really invested in it and kind of seeing this stuff like Michael Moore. Same thing. But he's up in Michigan. But but it was quite astonishing to see that. And by the way, at the same time as we're doing this, almost in real time during that conversation with Michael Goldfarb and myself in that abandoned building, Trump was sharing images on his Twitter account back then about abandoned structures. He was he was on a rallying through P.A., and he puts up like a picture very similar to mine, of course, blaming, you know, politicizing it. But it, it was quite shocking that, you know, the, the irony of that, you know. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Seth Lawless, noted photojournalist, documentarian, published author. You've seen his work on Viceland. His latest book is Abandoned Malls of America, Crumbling Commerce Left Behind. I mean, is, his work is just so iconic all over Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. That one carousel, that one abandoned carousel that I saw in a CNN excerpt, I think it was from in Rochester. You know, it's it, it's pristine and it's still colorful, and the backdrop is this drab abandoned mall, and the metaphor just hits you right in the heart. I mean, our parents took us here, got us pizzas, orange Julius. We rode 
on these on these carousels. You can hear the music. You can remember the time. You can remember the joy and the innocence. And these structures were massive and indefatigable and certainly seemed immortal to us. And and to put it in such sharp relief in the way you did, I don't know why that one just punched me in the gut. Well, it's amazing that some images, I, I got to say, when, when I'm going to frame an image and take an image, I, I, I kind of can sense like if an image is really going to, you know, reach the viewer in, in a deep way. And that was one, one of my favorite images I ever have taken, I think is the same one we're referring to, was that. Uh, because you're right, the detail of that carousel and in them all like that, um, it was pretty astonishing to see. In fact, uh, there's another one lower on in my Instagram feed that I actually plug it in and it actually lit up. Uh, didn't move, but you heard me a soft Please. music. I mean, there's there's definitely a horror movie or two in these. I'm, I'm sure you can imagine the screenplay. Exactly. Right? Yeah, a lot, uh, a lot of these places very uh, very much like that. And I know, look, I know this is radio, but I'm going to put them all over, uh, you know, our Facebook feed and your Instagram feed and and our Instagram as well. But what about the snow coming through the caved-in ceiling? That's a that's an infamous photo of yours, and all over the escalators. That's one of of nature really trying to reclaim this awfully messy, uh, uh, you know, completely scrapped edifice, again, which used to be a pinnacle of luxury. Oh, it, it was absolutely insane to be inside an abandoned mall filled with snow. And then not only that, but I actually captured it snowing in the mall. Like it was, it was a blizzard outside. And it was the most surreal experience I've ever been in my entire life. There was, wasn't in just the main section of the mall, but the escalators but walking up the escalators and literally like a foot of snow uh, to be able to photograph such a thing. The lighting was just so surreal. It was such a beautiful, calming, peaceful experience, probably the most peaceful explorer I've ever had. And I, I remember going by multiple times to that uh, mall. Uh, again, that was one of the malls that I grew up attending too as a, as a kid and throughout uh, my teenage years. So It sounds like a question a seventh grader might ask you and kind of show and tell, but what are some of the craziest things or people or animals you've encountered in any abandoned edifice. It could have been a haunted house, a factory, a mall, for example. Was there inventory left behind? Were there video games working? Did you find a, a nest of owls or hawks or vultures? I, I'm dying to know. Talk well, my head off. It's been a lot. Um, definitely alligators that, that will catch you by surprise. especially if, Yeah, alligators definitely down in Six Flags, the abandoned amusement park there. Um you know, a lot of people think I went in there legally and I never have. Um, we tried to a couple different times actually for Inside Edition and I think the Weather Channel, but we never got access. But I've been into that uh, amusement park several, several times. And each time I have to go through where the water is up to like my mid thigh. So you're in there pretty deep for a ways uh, and all alligators feet away just that you don't even see. That was crazy. And then you have wild boars down there as well. So that place is just inundated with wildlife snakes. Um, that was a pretty crazy experience. There's been a, a couple places in Germany, the same thing, uh, vultures swooping down. Um, a vulture, honestly, is uh, pretty intimidating. I don't know if people realize how big they are, but they're gigantic. And uh, there was one on top of a, 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 a real high uh, abandoned hotel. And there was a, a nest nearby, and I guess I got too close to the nest, and both of the, the male and female were just attacking me, like, violently, <laughs> like, swooping down, pecking me, like, their talons, like, digging into me. Like, it was no joke. Like, it literally drew blood. 
Yeah, who's your who's your health insurer? I gotta ask. <laughs> Are you on the Obamacare exchange? Yeah, right. Or... The health marketplace, of course. I don't even know how you buy idiosyncratic insurance for what you do. You kind of yeah, I need a uh, professional insurance. Uh, it, I I can't imagine. But what about people? Uh, at the very minimum, I can imagine scavengers, right? If if not for inventory left in these malls, and certainly I mentioned copper pipes before, especially during the commodity boom. You saw in two thousand eight that people were stripping things out of abandoned parks. There was uh, the, uh, reclaiming grease from grease traps. I mean, have you met scavengers? Oh, yeah, tons. And uh, some of the scrappers uh, were so incredibly uh, sophisticated in how they worked, believe it or not. Like, they would actually pull in trucks with generators on them. They had power. They had makeshift torches. They were doing things wow. that, you know, OSHA would go, you know, crazy, right? I mean, they're hanging off the ledges cutting down big ceiling beams. At any given moment, you could have went into the Packard plant. It's the largest abandoned factory in America, and it's up in Detroit still to this day. It's one of my favorite places to explore. And you, you at some point, and the city cracked down on this, but man, up until a few years ago, any time you went in there, there was multiple people scrapping on such a sophisticated level, pulling out so much stuff. And so you do see that quite a bit. There's another time where I met people that actually live in these structures. Now, that happens a lot more than people might think about, but there was a guy that lived in an abandoned church for several years because I went back and visited him. That was interesting in a way. He lived way up in the upper levels of this old abandoned church up in Detroit, and he would jimmy the door in such a way where I would know if he was there or not. And so that was an interesting experience too. But you you meet people that are actually living in some of these abandoned hotels. You'll you'll go up, you know, eight flights of stairs or sometimes 80 flights of stairs and you'll see a homeless person living in one of the rooms with everything there, a mattress, everything set up. It's wild. How, how do you jury rig a place for electricity or for plumbing or for other things? I mean, uh, uh, explain explain that to me. There are a couple of formerly homeless people in Manhattan that would explain things to me? Or do the authorities just look the other way when they know that that people are largely inside and not bothering anyone? Well, in that particular case, in terms of, um, you know, the, the, the pickup trucks with the generators, and uh, you referring to that? No, but, uh, you know, going and squatting in a hotel and having any electricity, uh, uh, running water, hot water, uh, you know, making sure the sewerage doesn't back up. Yeah, that that's something I've never seen. They're, what I've witnessed, they've been in hotels that, that have been deserted a number of years with no working plumbing, as far as I know of, definitely no electricity. But they're resourceful in other ways in how they do that. They have a lot of makeshift things. And of course, at first glance, uh, for years, not years, but several times when I first started, I thought, oh, that's just trash, right? It's just littered trash like anything else. But it's a whole system. They have toilets they create and make and and everything like that. That took a while to to actually determine, but uh, they're they're more resourceful than I think people think. Take me off the the, the grid from malls and and what into what residential or factories or some of the other funky stuff. I know that isn't isn't the international gold standard of a kind of what they used to call abandonment porn, uh, Chernobyl or the site of the 1986 nuclear explosion. It's been kind of reclaimed by nature, and you have wild horses and wild deer and everything. Have you seen anything like that in the United States outside of malls and factories? Uh, yeah. Um, similar to Chernobyl in the sense um, I had a project that I did. I went out to a little town called Pitcher, Oklahoma, and that was a super fun site today. It was a town that was uh, all the residents at that in 2009 were forced to leave. The government shut it down. They deemed it inhabitable to uh, humans. 
due to years and years of unrestricted mining. You know, they were mining this compound, this uh, bi-compound was chat, and it uh, lines this little town like a little mountain range, an eerie mountain range. And uh, to get out there and walk around where you're not even allowed to be, you can't even drive on the streets in this town because the mining they did, there's so many sinkholes and you could sink at any given moment. I mean, this was the most apocalyptic town I've ever seen. I dubbed it the deadliest city in America. And um, it was a, a profound experience to see. But that was a good example. Going through the homes, you see people leaving pretty abruptly. And a lot of the residents in nearby town where they fled told me that the city didn't give them fair market values for their homes, or at least they felt that. But again, that was around the Hasi market crisis too. So uh, it was a horrible timing for that uh, town. Uh, but that's a fascinating uh, story. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please follow us, recommend us to friends, subscribe, and we're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Full D Radio. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Seth Lawless. I think I'm going to call this issue, this, this episode, Abandonment Issues. He's a famous photojournalist, documentarian. Uh, his book, the latest book is Abandoned Malls of America, Crumbling Commerce Left Behind. Just throw the name into Google Images and, and take in kind of the breathtaking. There's just so much dissonance in these photos. Uh, a lot of our childhood carousels, malls, the, the social community hubs of yesteryear dealing with the economic realities of you know the 2020s and the 2010s. Seb, I noticed that in an interview you did with CNN, you said that the three malls you grew up with in Ohio, uh, and you may have mentioned this earlier, and they're all featured in your latest book, they've been torn down and rebuilt as Amazon warehouses. You said Amazon had a huge role in the collapse of malls and stores in general. And I'm going to cite from a Credit Suisse report on Wall Street. Uh, in 2017, the bank said that it estimates that a quarter of the more than 1,200 malls on the American landscape would close by 2022. Indeed, this was prior to the pandemic walloping all of commercial real estate and, and retail property in general. If anything, I think this is going to be accelerated now that uh, malls have, have, many stores have died out, many restaurants have died out just in the past year. Yeah, you know, that was the the daunting reality, the statistics that the shopping mall is ever fading so fast. And we're kind of seeing that through my images. Um, but yeah, when the, when the pandemic happened, uh, I, I think that sped it up very quick in, in sense of it not being really sustainable. You know, you said malls have provided an abundance of jobs to the cities they were built in. They sometimes offered civic services. It was written like trash removal and snow plowing. So when they fail, their communities are hit hard. It's not just kind of a circus coming in and out of town, that there was an assumed permanence to, to what was going to be there, the jobs, the services, the community. It, it really was. And, and you got to bear in mind, you, people don't think of that so much today, but in the time when this was built in the 70s, a lot of, a lot of these malls, the 70s mall boom, for instance, there's a, a, the largest mall opened in 1978 in, in Cleveland, Ohio. It was Randall Park Mall, and uh, they had over 3,000 employees. It was such an intricate part of the, the community there that the city's municipal seal actually has a shopping bag on it still to this day. That's a profound statement, you know, but today we kind of look at a mall as kind of this ugly, capitalistic, you know, like, oh, you know, but malls played a, an intricate role in, in these communities when they were built. 
Yeah, as you wrote in the book, the malls also played a gaslighting role. You, you, you wrote how much the U.S. shopping mall has changed since, I guess, the inception of the format back in 1956. Uh, Southdale Center in Edina, Minnesota, which was launched by the Italian immigrant Victor Gruen, he's considered the father of the modern mall. And, you know, you write, you note that the designs were so ingenious and manipulative that the term the Gruen effect is still used to describe how a shopping mall is designed to disorient shoppers and encourage impulse purchases. I've even heard Gruen invoked in Vegas, where you see a lack of windows inside the casino, a lack of clocks, so you lose time as you're wasting away money at the craps table. It's amazing to me. The the whole concept that he had, um, and it, it, you're right, even the design seems so manipulative and very capitalistic in that sense, but you see how it works as well, right? But the consumer today seems to change. The consumer now faces buried in their cell phone as they go to a store they want to go. I think the consumers today don't want to go to a mall and pass five or six stores anymore to get to the store they want to go to. They want to drive right up in front of the Apple store, get out, get their product, get back in their car and get on their way. So I think the consumer habits definitely have changed. But that definitely is something that Victor Gruen saw as being potentially problematic to sustainability of uh, of malls here in America. You talk about sustainability, and I'm looking at all of these pictures and the edifice and everything, and this is just not sustainable. Uh, right now in this in this housing boom, everybody's talking about a shortage of sheetrock, a shortage of copper, and essential building materials. And if you were to look at the thousands and thousands of abandoned edifices across the country that haven't been fully picked over, they're sitting on all of this construction material, again, that was, was, was capital-intensive and energy-intensive to mine. Uh, it seems like you know there's a recycling culture in trash, but but not in commercial real estate. Even in residential real estate, Seth, a, a lot of the mansions you cover, their fixtures are coveted. Uh, people want to come in and get a turn of the century bathtub or or gaslight. Yeah, it's frustrating over the years seeing these abandoned structures just kind of decay away, and 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 seeing the material go to waste and not being you know um, recycled in that sense. I don't know what that is, and it's only gotten worse. The com- commercial real estate market is, you know, has been affected drastically with the pandemic. So I just see this getting worse, and I don't know how to address that. And I don't know if anyone really has really put a plan to, to address that issue. But it's a it's a it's a lot of waste in, in, in dollars. It makes no sense. I'm sure people ask you all the time, especially now that we're out and about. What do you think is going to happen to all these buildings? I mean. Sears hanging on for dear life. I'd have to do so many TV and radio hits about finally, you know, this is the end for Sears. Uh, you still see uh, old Bradleys, old Jefferson Ward, right? There, there are some places like people are amazed that Kmart is still around. It's only a matter of time. And a lot of these landlords have them hanging on for dear life because they cannot inundate the commercial property market with more empty, drab, square footage. When is there going to be a movement? There has to be an opportunity for the human vulture investors, for example, in in the grand repurposement of the various vintages of malls, 70s, 80s, 90s, even the aughts, even some of the shiny malls that displace the earlier malls are dying out now. Yeah, it's just a a drastic shift. And uh, I really don't know where where the consumer is going to be headed on this. You know, it's weird coming out of the pandemic. You know, people want to go out more. I'm seeing that shift more. I, I would I would assume that maybe the traffic at malls are probably a little bit higher. People just wanting to get out of the house. But you know that hate. You know, we have to wait and see what happens. You know, six months out, are we going to be back? You know, shut down somewhat. Who knows? So there's that uncertainty. So 
it's it's really hard to tell, you know, how you can repurpose these malls. It looks like Amazon is just going to scoop them up one by one. It's enough space for their parking. It's enough space for their facility. They just tear them down, build them up. I've only seen another mall used for anything else, and it was a community college. But uh, it's rare. It's hard to repurpose these malls uh, is what uh, has been told to me by engineers and, and things over the years. It never really made a lot of sense to me, though. What is the most successful example you've seen of repurposement? I mean, the holy grail for a lot of commercial developers now is mixed use, right? They say things, millennials and Gen Z want to be in walking proximity. They want to Uber. They don't want to have cars. They want stores, community space. There's the whole, uh, as you've seen parallel to this, uh, the co-working space movement where you want to live where you work and vice versa. Has, has anybody pulled it off in your travels successfully? Uh, with abandoned malls, especially? Yes. One example that stands out, if somebody were to visit, like, oh, this is a case study in how you repurpose one of these old dinosaurs. It, no, not, not, a, not a proof positive example where it uh, was sustainable in any respect. A lot of it drafted drawings, uh, goals that were really never met. They're trying to do something to one in my book, uh, Fiesta Mall uh, in Phoenix or near Phoenix. And that might be okay. The The thought there is a, a mix of, of dental and hospital services in the mall. But we'll see. I mean, time will tell. But I have not seen that yet, no. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Seth Lawless, photojournalist, documentarian. His book is Abandoned Malls of America, Crumbling Commerce Left Behind. Again, throw that name into Google Images, Seth Lawless. Breathtaking photos. I remember the dinosaur park in Michigan. Uh, what the heck? I think I saw that a, a decade ago or something. There was a, a Jurassic Park type edifice that was abandoned in 02 and you were you, you, you took the most haunting pictures. I didn't even know such a thing existed. Yeah, that was a, a really cool theme park. Uh, I drove up into uh, a, a rural part of Michigan and uh, came up on it and it was as surreal as you might see right from the road, no fence or anything. Yeah, this you know, abandoned uh, dinosaur theme park where there's like life-size dinosaurs just uh, with the overgrown trees. Uh, it was quite an experience to walk in there uh, throughout the the whole place. It, it was I've never been in a place like that. Seb, take me back to the factories where you you know you come from factory lineage in the Rust Belt. Uh, you might be following what's going on at Lordstown Motors. That's the electric vehicle automaker, at least in theory, located in Lordstown, Ohio, where. There was this uh, uh, much-talked-about GM assembly plant, which was, I, I think, uh, controversially abandoned while Donald Trump was president. But this this beautiful, like, it's a fairy tale story where the internal combustion engine crashed and burned. You have the future of electric taking over, and it's kind of seamless and plug-and-play and show up. And yet, that dream might prove to be a lot of hype. And it it didn't work by and large in the majority of these Rust Belt factories. They have not been repurposed. Uh, the example of Tesla in Fremont, California cer certainly has been successful. But these abandoned factories are not of much use overall to 2021 vintage you know, tech companies, for example. That's very true. And, and you have a lot in, in the Midwest of uh, you know, abandoned Ford, uh, Ford plants too. Um, that that I see, especially in Ohio, I pass them every day. They look almost operational, but the parking lots sit empty day after day, and they're abandoned. They're paying the lease, uh, but it's not functional, and some of them haven't been functional for years. So it is something that uh, I, I see quite a bit. Is there a part of you that kind of concedes, understands that automation has replaced a lot of these old factory jobs? I mean, time was. I read it in a 1971 issue of Life magazine. I think there's a 
cover story about the boredom of, of the factory workers being a risk. Automation has replaced a lot of these workers. Uh, these jobs aren't coming back. A lot of them, as you know, have been offshored. We haven't even talked about the jobs that have left to Mexico or to, to Asia, overseas to China and to Vietnam, China being the manufacturing hub of the world. Is there still this social compact in the United States where you can get, say, a high school degree and a decent, you know, you can expect to get a decent living wage as a factory worker, as a factory assembly worker? No, honestly, I, I think that is, uh, I think it's just getting harder to compete with automation. I just think, I think the pandemic actually has sped that up too, you know, to that point. Uh, I think we're closer today uh, towards automation that's going to drastically affect Americans in a very quick process. I mean, I just read the other day, McDonald's is, is testing automation drive through right? Most of the Walmarts don't have cashiers now. We're talking little jobs like that, where many Americans who are living paycheck to paycheck with no job security, no union to back them, if they were you know, jobless tomorrow, many of them would say, you know, I could just get a job in retail. I can get a job at Walmart. I could get a job at McDonald's. That looks like it's going to narrow in, in the next several years. And they're already having a problem with, with getting people to work. It's a, good, a very good excuse for them to speed up this process of automation. And I don't know how we handle that outside of taxing the robot. You commented uh, from time to time as well on the opioid epidemic, which is especially ravaged. You know, it, it sounds cliche, but, but whole swaths of the Rust Belt. That is a, th this is an addiction of, out of desperation, that it's a mental health crisis, that people were looking for an escape from their, you know, kind of terminal reality. Um, and, and this is something that has taken thousands and thousands of lives and so many people out of the workforce. It's become, you know, even the Federal Reserve has mentioned in regional reports that this is a risk, a true risk to the economy. Yeah, the opiate uh, epidemic in, in this area, especially, uh, and throughout the Rust Belt region, was some of the, the highest in, in the country. And so witnessing that firsthand and, and, and knowing friends and uh, even my, a family member of mine suffering with that, um, it, it really impacted a lot of people. And it's so predatory as well. We had, you know, there was just institutions and these little doctor offices would pop up and they were essentially pill doctors and um, handing out, you know, an alarming amount of pills, of opioids. But it, it, it really ravaged uh, many parts of Ohio, actually. Have you had uh, much interaction with, with drug addicts or, or, or communities inside some of these abandoned properties? You talked about hotels earlier. Yeah, no, that there has been uh, times where you you meet people who are not living in these abandoned structures, but that are using, you know, uh, they obviously don't want to be in public. They might be shooting up or, or, or doing other drugs. Usually they don't bother me, though. They see I'm not a threat and I I'm obviously just go in the opposite direction of them. And we kind of coexist in that moment while I'm in there. Once I'm done, I leave and there's a mutual respect. Now, Seth Lawless, in the 10 minutes or so we have left with you, I know it is your nature to turn the camera uh, away from yourself, but if you could flip it around and the microphone just on you, uh, you are a creative, you're a, you're a journalist, you're a person out there who is, uh, you know, as you say in your own words, I'm just a rogue photojournalist and published author who explores the most mysterious places in the world. I know it's a departure from what we've been talking about, but let's comment on how you make a living. Uh, a, a lot of your stuff out there is going to be viral. It's going to be posted. You have to be disciplined about copyright and getting paid uh, when uh, a news organization or a magazine wants to use your work. How did you put on the businessman cap? 
you know, after the passion was understood and you pursued abandonment as a passion and telling these stories as a passion, but then how did you morph it into a career, a living? Yeah, to me, that was a little bit of a struggle to turn my hobby, my passion into a career because you don't want to ruin it in a sense. So I have that kind of weird mentality about myself. But, um, you know, once the images started taking off, I started putting them in self-published books. I started making a, a good deal, which is creating the books on my own and, and shipping them. And I made a, a pretty good amount of money doing that before I was even published. But it, most published authors get treated the same way in terms of they get a, some kind of a book advance, depending on how big you are, how many, you know, uh, other books you might have written and data. And then you get royalties. So you get paid once a year. Most authors have that kind of same general contract. So, you know, that's a revenue um, stream for me as well as uh, speaking engagements. I'll speak at like, Temple University, uh, high schools, universities, and then, you know, leasing the images to a variety of media, like book covers, album covers. Recently, Michael C. Hall wrote me, you know, he plays Dexter and then Showtime, the show, one of my favorite shows. So he's in a band now and uh, he wanted to use one of my images. He's like, hey, man, I'm a huge fan. I want to use uh, an abandoned mall image actually, uh, for this album cover. I was like, that was great. So I lease my images for a lot of different, uh, ways. So that's pretty profitable for me as well. Uh, and exhibitions, my exhibitions opening again in, in Europe, um, uh, in Germany, uh, in fall this year. So, uh, hopefully with the pandemic and, 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 you know, reopening it, it, that will go all, all planned, but the pandemic slowed me down just uh, like everyone else. You know, I, I couldn't travel and, you know, I stayed home and was safe and all that good stuff. And tell me about your relationship with social media. I mean, how you've used it's really certainly enabled you. Your 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 Instagram feed is is often highlighted, very often linked to. You have tremendous clout there on Facebook, on Twitter. People who can come to you. It's not like you're out there pounding the pavement. I mean, back in the day, you might have been at a Walden Books <laughs> or a, a Borders or whatever. You know, a, a, a touring the area of having a table up at a mall. But now people can see these things and. Your Insta is tagged, your uh, Pinterest, everything else out there. It's kind of let you, I know it's 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 obvious to uh, people who use it, but maybe not to people on the outside where it's not like you're paying a publicist to splash emails all over to journalists and everyone. You're very much a one-man show. You're very much a one-man show, yeah. So, you know, the social media to me early on was not profitable in any any sense of the word. And that's really not the point of it. The point I've always said was, my art isn't complete until it's shared. So I want to share it. And I definitely wanted to share and wanted people to see images that I was taking all over the world. I didn't want just Americans to see it. I wanted the world to see America in a more vulnerable, in my opinion, more of a realistic way. Like I, I think people from other countries were seeing America, you know, with the beautiful city skyscapes of New York City and Seattle. But they were seeing my images and thought that it was a third world country. They didn't think it was America. And then Americans started looking at my images and thought the same thing. So to me, to share it was, to me, was vital. I wasn't just taking these images for myself. No, I was taking these images to share with as many people as I possibly could. I'm so haunted by a quote you gave once, I think, in the wake of uh, your book, Autopsy of America. And thinking back to your time as a child, like I did, and went with my parents and ro rode the choo-choo train with my brother at Aventura Mall during Christmas time, and there was a Santa there, you said the malls were great. They were thriving and vibrant, much like the economy at the time. That was a happy time for most Americans. The malls were filled with shoppers and tenants. You said, of course, many people will say that that kind of 
nostalgia clouds our judgment. It certainly wasn't perfect back then. Uh, you know, minimum wages or the Gruen effect or uh, various things going on and and uh, suburban sprawl and and too much of a dependence on the automobile. But what is it again? Something you said since the country, our generation at least, you talk about Gen X, seems that there's an innocence loss. We got walloped by September 11th, where we kind of initially developed a fear of of two open places, uh, the financial crisis, which had a lot of people moved and, and displaced. Uh, what happened again uh, with the pandemic, which might have sounded a death knell for most of the malls that were left. When you study history and when you talk to people going back uh, earlier than the inception of the mall in 1952, doesn't this just happen to every generation? Yeah, you know, I actually do. I think this does, you know, there's a cycle that, that kind of does happen and, and people readjust and they, you know, they kind of figure it out. So I, I think that's what will happen in this case. Close us out. Uh, what's coming up for you? Uh, projects, places you're going to visit? You know, leave us little clues so somebody doesn't ransack a mall or a, a farm or a dinosaur park before you get there. I'm dying to know. I mean, you know, one that was very popular, for example, growing up with for us was the Omni International Mall in downtown Miami, which was the luxury mall in downtown Miami in the late 70s. And it was largely left to abandonment in the late 90s. And there were all sorts of people who went in there and took pictures of carousels and, and defunct brands, Fava Shoes, Tom McCann. What's coming up for you? Well, you know, I, I'm really anxious to uh, fly international again, so I'm going to be doing that. And But there are a couple different abandoned malls, <laughs> new ones that are not in my book. I still have such a passion to explore these abandoned malls. So I'm going to hit some of those that have shuttered more recently. I would love to give you those locations, but that's not going to happen until after I step foot. Because if I do, well, it's everyone is going to be there. I thought of you. I recently saw the movie Nomadland. It was on Hulu, and I saw that abandoned gypsum uh, mine and the community in its wake. And I thought, has has Seth ever been to something like this, or even Love Canal up in Buffalo, Niagara, which is the most infamous, you know, the the toxic uh, the toxic episode from 1980, and to see how nature has reclaimed this place over 40 years. No, I haven't, but that sounds really good. In fact, that that movie was one of the best movies I've seen. So good. Seth Lawless, photojournalist, documentarian, published author. The latest book, you have to pick it up, is Abandoned Malls of America, Crumbling Commerce Left Behind. Please give us all of your Instagram and social media particulars. Uh, Seth Lawless, S-E-P-H-L-A-W-L-E-S-S. Twitter at Seth underscore Lawless. Uh, And you could just search me on YouTube, TikTok, whatever. It has been a joy having you on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Full disclosure, special thanks to producer Claire Morgan at Notterly. This show podcasts to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link fullderadio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to friends and fam. We air in Ventura, California, in Asheville, North Carolina, up in Arlington and D.C. on WERA 96.7. And please DM me on any of these media if you'd like to have us on your air. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening back with you next week.